We are in Hebrews chapter 13, reading from verse 20. And as the writer of the book of Hebrews closes out this book, this, which to him was a letter writing it to the, the, the Hebrew Christians, he says, Now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us, that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Okay, so this last part of, of, verse, <clears throat> of verse 20 says... It, it, it says, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. Jesus has set up everything. His blood has established everything. Jesus is the one to whom we go back to. Jesus is the one who's established this through His blood. Even when you have a text that seemingly doesn't talk about Jesus, if you follow it, it goes right back to Jesus. Just like, like all roads eventually connect. They go right back to Jesus. And he talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. Equip you in every good thing to do His will. Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. God wants to equip us for everything needed for His will. There's an interesting verse in Philippians 2 verse 13. It says, God is at work in you both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. God is at work in you both to will and to work. He actually causes our will to change, as well as the tasks we do to change. He is at work in us both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. Even the very will that we have to serve Him is from Him. Everything is from Him. It all goes back to Jesus Christ. He says, through the blood of the eternal covenant... It is Jesus' blood that has opened the door for all of this. All of this, To equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. The Scriptures say that He, in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it talks about how He has saved us to do good works. Not saved us by our works, but He saved us to do good works. Therefore, if we're not about the works of God, we're not in the place that we ought to be. He has saved us to do good works. This is part of getting hold of the life. You will see that people can come to the Lord at any age. People can come to the Lord, you know, a week before they die. They can come to the Lord in their 50s. They can come to the Lord in their 30s. But the best time is this very time to not let this time slip by. The reason is people who get saved when they're young, people who get saved... At your age, they can spend a lifetime serving the Lord. And you will see very often in churches, if you talk to people that are the most diligent in churches and doing things and very active, they're generally people who came to know the Lord when they were quite young. Not those who got saved in their 40s and 50s, generally. Why is that? Well, there's natural things that occur in our lives because what happens is, if you get saved... In your, by your early 20s, say. You can set your life on a pattern. You're going to be establishing your own home. Well, what's your home going to be like? What's your home life going to be like? 
Are you going to have prayer in your home? Are you going to pray with your spouse? Are you going to pray with your child? How are you going to order your life? How are you going to order your finances so that there can be a commitment to Christ in your finances? All of these patterns can be set early on and established early on. That's the blessing of getting saved at a young age. What happens when you get saved at an older age is that you've already set these patterns in your life. Very often you're already deeply in debt by the time you're in your 30s. You've established this way with your spouse as to how you're going to order your home. Your children aren't used to having family prayer time. And all of a sudden you want to try to bring these things upon, upon everyone in the family and it doesn't always flow. It's not always easy to do that. That's what this is all about. Let this get hold of your heart. Equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. Again, He brings it back, the whole thing to Jesus Christ. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Then He says, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now remember, this entire book that we've been studying for, I don't know, about a year now, the book of Hebrews, He says, Oh, this was just briefly. I urge you, brethren, bear with this word. The King James says, suffer with this word. Suffer with this word. Just engross yourself in this word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. The word of God has many different portions. I want to look at one way in that this is briefly. Because what happens is, the word of God doesn't address every situation that comes up in life directly but it does address everything indirectly, at least indirectly. Many things it addresses head-on. For example, should, could we marry an unbeliever? If you're a believer, should you marry an unbeliever? And the Bible is clear on that. You don't marry an unbeliever. It doesn't matter how handsome the guy is, how beautiful the girl is, how sweet she is. If she does not know the Lord, the Bible addresses that specifically. And I have seen this many times because remember, I've been in the university since the time I was 18. Never left. It's all I, it's, and so I, I go to lots of weddings. I, I go to a few funerals, but a lot of weddings. And, and, uh, so I've seen this. When believer marries unbeliever in knowing disobedience to what the Word of God says, it is always trouble. Always trouble. So there are things that the Word of God addresses directly. But you know when you read through the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, just do this, do this. I mean, just filled with specifications of what you should do. This is what you do in this situation. This is what you do in that situation. So many different details. I want to look back at Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 27. The book of Numbers, chapter 27. There is an occurrence here in the book of Numbers... chapter 27, and we're going to start reading from verse 1. So in the midst of all this detail in the law of Moses, something wasn't addressed. Here's, here's uh, uh, Numbers chapter 27, verse 1. The daughters of Zelophad, the son of Hepher, the son of Gilead, of the sons of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, came near. And these are the names of the daughters. Mahala, Noah, Hagla, and Milcah, and Tirzah. 
They stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the leaders and all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Our father died in the wilderness, yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died in his own sin and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his families because he had no son? Give us possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. Okay, so it, the Bible addresses all sorts of things when it comes to the law of Moses. But these daughters came and they came, there, there was this man and he had the, these, these daughters and it names them for us and they all come, these five daughters come and the, the daughters of Zelophehad and they come to Moses and they said, my do, my, our father had no son. So whatever his possession was is not going to be left, there's no one to leave it to because the law specifically left it to a son. Why should our father be left without an inheritance? Give it to us as his daughters. Now, it's really interesting that Moses didn't say, well, the Lord never addressed it. Too bad. You lose. You're out of it. Which he could well have done. Some people think that the, that, that the Bible is, is quite sexist. For its generation, it was quite open. Jesus had many women traveling with him. In fact, it says in Luke chapter 8, that there were many women that traveled along with Jesus and, 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 and supported the ministry of Jesus. You want to know who supported the ministry of Jesus? It was women. And it says many wealthy women traveled with Jesus in Luke chapter 8. Jesus appeared first to a woman. woman. Jesus was constantly dealing with women. He didn't say, oh, this is for men. Women go away. Which would have been quite natural in that culture. Here you have 1400 B.C. These women coming and saying... Uh, your law that you gave us, this law of God that you gave us, it didn't address this topic. And Moses didn't say, oh, well, just go away. It says, Moses brought their case to the Lord. The Word of God doesn't address every situation in our life. So there's a lot we have to bring to the Lord. A lot of cases you have to bring to the Lord. But when you have the context of the Word of God, it allows you to do that. In verse 6, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then he shall transfer his inheritance to his daughters. So, to his daughters. So you see that the Word of God didn't have this. Now you say, okay, God was surprised by this. God really left this out. No, He left it out intentionally for a reason, to teach us. You think that God didn't see this coming? But He teaches us through this. Moses brings their case before the Lord. The Lord speaks to Moses and He didn't, didn't say, oh well, you know, for, for we, we, we have to have some representation for women. So let's just do this. You know, we, we, we have to... We have to have some allotment to, to do this to make women feel needed. No, he said they're right. They're right. God said what they bring to you is correct. Give it to them. Not only to them, make this a statute in all of Israel. That if a man dies and he has no sons, only daughters, let the inheritance go to the daughters to make sure that this can be raised up in his name. So you see the Word of God when He says, I've written to you briefly, it doesn't deal with every detail 
in life. Many times we have to bring things before the Lord. So you get, you, you get two job offers. Which one do I take? Well, try to find that in the Bible. You know, it, it, it doesn't mention Lockheed Martin and, and, and Boeing. You know, so the, you know, which, one, which, one do you, which one do you take? You have to bring this before the Lord. And the Lord will put a sense on your heart when you have a relationship with God. He will put a sense on your heart when you bring these decisions to the Lord. You can ask people that you value their opinion. But ultimately, you've got to bring this thing to God. So I, I got an offer from Rice 20 years ago. I was teaching in a state university for 11 years, and, and, and I got an offer from Rice. What do I do? I enjoyed my position. The university where I was at was very good to me. But I asked a few people. And I asked Shireen's father, who I really respect his opinion. And, and, uh, and, and he prayed, and he said, Jim, you, you, you know, I, I, if you go, I, I have no sense that, that, of any warning. And uh, I remember I asked my pastor. In fact, I was calling him up to, to, to talk to him. And, uh, and I called him and in, in his home because he and I had a, were, were good friends. And, and I called him and he said to me, so I, I explained to him that I had this offer from Rice University. And he's from Texas, so he knows Rice quite well. And, uh, and he said, as I was walking to the phone... The Lord told me that it was you who was calling. And this is before the days of caller ID. And, and he, said, he said that the Lord spoke to me before I picked up the phone. This is Jim calling and he's going to be leaving. And when I told him, you know, this offer, he said, you know, I had peace with it. I mean, the Lord's already spoken it to me. I called my own father. My, my father's not a believer, but he's my father. And I honor him. And uh, uh, I told him, I explained to him the situation. And he was very clear to me, just like the way he always is. He says, Jim, you'd be an idiot not to accept that offer. And, and so, you know, I, I had a... But ultimately, I brought this before the Lord. And I brought it to Shireen. And Shireen was not in favor of this. And, uh, uh, and so then they had both of us out, me and Shireen. And they had the kids out. And they brought us out as a family. And... And Rick Smalley, the Nobel Prize winner, had us over to his home and had a big gathering for us and had a quartet from the Shepherd School playing stringed instruments. And, and, uh, uh, and, and, then, and then when I got back home from that visit with the family, the dean called me up and she raised the offer even more. And then I told Shireen, she said, I'm okay with going. <laughs> so Shireen was on board with it too. And so there was confirmation from all these different sides, and I had peace with it, but there was no direct word that said, go to Rice University. This is the types of things that happen in life. And God shows us examples that though there's plenty of detail in the law of Moses, still situations came up. Now look in, in, in Numbers, the same book, the book of Numbers, and we're going to go to the, the, the last chapter of the book of Numbers, chapter 36. In chapter 36. And in chapter 36, verse 1, it says, And the heads of the father's households of the family of the sons of Gilead, the sons of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, of the families of the sons of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the heads of the father's households of Israel. And they said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give land by lot to the sons of Israel as inheritance. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophad, our brother, to his daughters. 
But if they marry one of the sons of the other tribes of the sons of Israel, their inheritance will be withdrawn from the inheritance of our fathers and will be added to the inheritance of the tribes from which those, those other men belong. Thus it will be withdrawn from our allotted inheritance. So in other words, there was a new situation came up. You've given the land to these daughters, but the problem is if these daughters marry a man from another tribe in Israel, then this allotment to the children of Manasseh is going to be, start being encroached upon by these other tribes who are going to get that allotment. And so, so what happens is, is uh, um, in verse 5, Then Moses commanded the sons of Israel according to the word of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to Moses again. He must have sought the counsel of Moses, Moses didn't just shoot from the hip and say, uh-oh, never thought of what he was going to do. I mean, God was the one who told Moses to do this, so he goes back to the Lord. By the word of the Lord, he says, the tribe of the sons of Joseph are right in their statements. This is what the Lord has commanded concerning the daughters of Zelophad, saying, let them marry whom they wish, only they must marry within the family of the tribe of their father. In other words, if they can't marry outside the tribe of Manasseh, they marry outside, they lose their inheritance. They have to marry within the tribe. So there was a solution to this, and the Lord said, this is going to be the solution. They have to marry within that tribe. So the Lord put parameters on it. So again, you have all these things in the Word of God, but it morphs. It, 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 it expands as God gives us understanding. This is what He's talking about. I've, I've written to you briefly. So let's turn back to the, the end of the book of, of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. And so when he says in Hebrews chapter 13, he, he says, he says that verse 22, but I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. For I've written to you briefly. You have to take this word and make it a part of your life. You bear with this word of exhortation. You bear with it. You take it and you incorporate it. So let's look over this letter, just summarizing a few things. Look in Hebrews chapter 1, verses that we've already studied. But he says, I want you to bear with this word. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Where did we start in this book? God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom through whom He also made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is where we start. Everything starts with Jesus. He is our focus. He says He speaks to us now in His Son. How does God speak to us? Not through Moses. He speaks to us through His Son. Everything is embodied in Jesus Christ. He says He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of God the Father. You want to know what God the Father is like? You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Philip said, show us the Father. Jesus said to Philip, I have been with you all this time, and yet you have not known me, Philip? When we see Jesus, we, we see what God is like. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. Jesus is the one that we focus on. Jesus is the one whom we can see. God is no longer far off. 
this ethereal being that's, that's far off. We look at Jesus and Him crucified. He is the exact radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, the exact representation. Jesus embodies God the Father. What exactly God the Father is like, Jesus is like. He is the exact representation of His nature. He upholds all things by the word of His power. It's in Jesus that everything is upheld. You say, God upholds everything. Absolutely. In Christ. In Jesus, everything is upheld. He made purification for our sins. He made purification. It's because of Him that we are saved. And if you do not know the Lord, don't worry that you're going to be condemned. You're condemned already. If you don't know the Lord, you're condemned already. John 3, 18. You are condemned already if you do not know Him because you've denied the only begotten Son. John 3, 18. You're condemned already. The only hope for you if you don't know Jesus is to come to Him, to believe on Him. As all the prophets have said, to whoever believes on the Lord Jesus shall be saved. Everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus shall be saved. It is set before you this day. It is, this day it is set before you. Don't go, let this day pass by. If you haven't received the Lord, don't say, well, I'll do it sometime. You don't know that you'll do it sometime. You don't know that you'll have another opportunity. The Bible says, behold, today is the day of salvation. Don't let this thing go. Who knows if your heart is going to be hardened? Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what's going to be happen if, if you'll be led astray? You might meet somebody who you fall in love with and, and they don't know the Lord and before you know it, you're led astray. The enemy is very good at taking those who are interested and drawing them astray. Jesus has a whole parable on that. He says, He made purification for our sins and He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And we're gonna, we're gonna look at, at verse 7. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7. He fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as he has said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He says, suffer with this word. Take this word and make it your study. He said, I've only spoken to you briefly, but what I've written to you, make it your study. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. This is not just for the unbeliever, but for the believer. The Word of God fills us and confronts us with things that war against our flesh, that war against us. He says, you follow the Word of God. If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear His voice. Why if you hear His voice? Why does He say, if you hear His voice? Because our ears become clogged. The more we, we refuse to do God's will, the harder it is to hear Him. Every time He speaks to us, imploring us to do something according to His will, when we don't do it, we draw further back from God. And it's harder to hear Him the next time. And you say, well, you know, next time I hear it, then maybe I'll come. Well, it's not going to be as clear next time. We get more light. The Bible is clear. The more we obey God, the more light He gives us. The more we obey God, the more light He gives us. The more we disobey, the further we slide back into darkness. 
Look in that same chapter, verse 16, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Draw near to the throne of grace. Oh, unbeliever, those of you who do not know Christ, remember, you're condemned already because you deny the Lord. This is what the Word of God says. I don't say it. I have no authority in this. Jesus is our authority. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Are you in a time of need? Draw near with confidence. Very few Christians ever draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. God for them is afar off. Even though He's come and died for our sins, he still they still view Him as being far off. He's done everything. Imagine if you have a child. Imagine if you have a child and you have given your child for somebody else's welfare, for somebody else's salvation, for somebody else's help. And then they say, well, you know, I'm not sure if you really love me. Well, duh, I just gave you my child. I mean, what more can I give you? This is exactly what it is. He says, let us draw near. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. <clears throat> And we're going to start reading at verse 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So he is quoting from from, uh, the book of Isaiah. This is what he says. Remember, if you do not know the Lord, he says, I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Imagine God saying, come to me, come to me. You say, well, there's this, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of sinful. Well, that's the whole thing about it. You come to Him, He will remember your sins no more. Which means that He doesn't act upon it. He doesn't act upon it. As the Word of God says, you see, He talks about, and God remembered Abraham. Meaning that it's not like He had forgotten Abraham and now He remembers him. Meaning that He's going to act toward Abraham now. When he says, I will remember your sins no more. He doesn't act upon our past sins. He washes them in the blood of Christ. They are gone. And I will remember your sins no more. Come to Jesus this day. Come to Jesus. I will remember your sins no more. And then then turn turn again to, to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And look at, at verse the end of verse 5. The end of verse 5 says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? There will come times in your life where you feel the affliction coming against you. And this will have great meaning for you. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? This book is rich in promises, the promises of God. And the writer says, suffer with this word. Take hold of this word. Make it a part of your life. The way he puts it, he says, he, he says to them, I urge, but I urge you in verse 22 of Hebrews 13, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation for I've written to you briefly. Bear with it. I've written to you briefly. It's not a huge You know, eight volumes. It's one little book. Take this. Make it a part of your life. 
So that when people come against you, you can say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? What will man do to me? That you take this word and you make it a part of your life. Then he goes on to say, take notice that our brother in verse 23, Timothy has been released. With whom if he comes, I will see you soon. In other words, Timothy was in prison. All of these great men of God who served the Lord, I mean, they found themselves in prison. Why didn't Jesus protect them from prison? Well, that's part of the suffering that goes on with Christ. Timothy, take notice of brother, he's been released. With whom, if he comes, I will see you. If he comes soon, I will see you. In other words, this writer might be in prison, he might not be in prison, but he says, if Timothy comes, I'm going to come with him. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Greet all of your leaders. So in other words, this book was not written to the leaders of the church among the, the, the Hebrew Christians. It was written to some other group, some committee amongst them or something. He says, because I want you to greet your leaders. I want you to greet your leaders and all of the saints. The scripture refers to them as saints. Believers, it refers to as saints. It calls us saints. Greet all the saints. Then he says, those from Italy greet you. So either the writer was writing from Italy or there were a group of Italians that were with him. One of the two. One of the, one of the two. And then he says, grace be with you. Now, what is the result of this book? What is the result of this? Because remember, that I've told you like a hundred times, this book was written for those who surround Jerusalem in Judea, not those who live in Jerusalem. And he's telling them, go, don't go back into Judaism. Don't go into Jerusalem or you're going you're to lose your life. You're going to die in that destruction. And so the Bible doesn't talk about what happens. We don't find it in the Bible, but we find it in extra biblical references. So there's three references to what happened to the Jewish believers, those who, who accepted Christ. There's three, three historians have written about this. Josephus was one of them. He was a first century Jewish historian who was employed by the Roman government. He witnessed the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, Hegesippus was a second century Jewish believer. And he wrote about this. And Eusebius, who is a 4th century Gentile Christian, wrote about this. So we have three different historians that have written about this. And what they tell us is that after the first Jewish revolt, which was in 66 AD, so there was a revolt in Jerusalem against the Romans. Not smart to do that. All right? So that occurred in 66 AD. And it says that, that uh, uh, the the forces of Rome surrounded Jerusalem. And Jesus had given them a warning in the Gospels. He says, when you see the troops surrounding Jerusalem, then you know, flee. Well, how can they flee? Because the troops are... Well, then the troops, the Roman troops, because of some disturbance that occurred at another place, had pulled back. And those who were Jewish believers in the city took that as the time to flee. And they fled along with these other Jewish believers that were, that were around Judea. There were, there were 20,000 that were in the city of Jerusalem when the 66 AD uh, surrounding occurred. All those 20,000 left. And what these three men report is that no Jewish believers died. They went to Pilate. So they, they knew that they had to even leave Judea because usually what would happen when there's an attack, everybody is going to go into the city with the walls where it's protected. In this case, the Jewish believers 
took what this book said and they left. They went to Pila. Pila is a city that's on the eastern side of the Jordan River. It's about one mile east of where the, the Israeli, uh, uh, the, the Israeli Jordan border is today. And so it's, it's, it's in present day Jordan and it's about 17 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. And it, 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 it's, uh, it has another name. Today it goes by the name Tabakat Fahal. And so that's the, the Arab name for that city. But that's the city they went to. You can go and visit that city. I saw online that, you know, it's $59 for a three-star hotel in that city today. <laughs> but you can go and see that hotel. In the city of Jerusalem, in the 70 AD conquest by Rome of the city of Jerusalem, 1.1 million Jews were killed in that city. All the 20,000 of the believing Jews, those that believed on Jesus who lived in that city, plus all the surrounding ones, they went across the Jordan River and up to the city of Pilah. And they stayed there and they waited this out. None of them died according to what we're told by these historians. So did this book, did this book by this writer have an effect? Huge effect. This warned them and they took hold of that warning and they fled and they were okay. When we don't take hold of this book, and its warnings, life does not go well. When we take hold of this book and its warnings, life is not necessarily easy. They had to pick up, they had to leave their home. For years, they had to leave their home. Because remember, the, 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 the assault came at 66 AD. The conquering didn't come to, till 70 AD. So who knows how, how many years they were, they were away from their land. But that's what it talks about. So life isn't necessarily easy. But there is the blessing of God when we obey this word, when we obey this book. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. And I pray, Lord, for these young people that they would take to heart the things that they have seen. For the unbelievers, Father, I pray that you draw them to Jesus, that this day their hearts would be convicted of their sins, that they would not deny the Lord Jesus Christ, but believe upon him for all those who believe, receive forgiveness of sins. And Lord, I pray for those here who know you, that they would suffer with this word, bear with this word, pick up the promises from the word of God, that everything is around Jesus, that he is the exact representation of God's glory and nature. Everything is embodied in Christ. Father, I pray that they would be drawn closer to Jesus, that they would take this word and make it a part of their lives, that they would bear with this word, that they would learn to go back to the word of God for clarity when things come at them in life and decisions they have to make, that they would take it as a matter of prayer and bring it back to the Lord and that, Lord, you would speak to their heart and just that you would grip their heart with the right decision. Father, your grace abound. Your grace abound there. The grace of Jesus abound upon them, I pray. Father, we commit their lives to you. Father, be good to them, I pray. Watch over them. And as many will be leaving because of the end of the semester, leaving this week, Father, be with them. Watch over them this summer. Protect them, I pray. And Father, let them remember your word and make it a close part of their lives. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.